Oh, hey, Jay. So, is Jubilee still a vampire? She is not, Miles. I thought that was especially hard to cure. Well, yeah. So how did Jubilee manage it? With the help of Quentin Choir. Wait, seriously? And the Phoenix Force. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 432 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. One. Ah, 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 ah. Exactly, because, like, it's episode 432 and it needed a one, and I don't think we're going to get to episode 4321, so, you know, now's the time. Based on the rate at which the line is expanding, episode 4321 is going to be like, I don't know, the Draco? <laughs> I love that that's your go-to. It's it's just, you know, it's got a short title, it's very memorable, it's in the indeterminate future, and I'm halfway between dreading and anticipating it. Entirely reasonable. You know, very soon as we record this, Cy Spurrier is going to write a one-shot called X-Men Blue Origins, which is going to be a follow-up to the Draco, and Spurrier has promised to make it all make sense, and I'm so intrigued. I'm a little disappointed, honestly. We should just leave the Draco. Listeners, if you're not familiar, the Draco is a uh, famously... Is controversial the right word? A story that told us that Nightcrawler's dad was the devil, essentially? I don't think it is controversial. It's it's universally panned. Um, but no, what I was going to say is I don't think it should be left alone. I think it should be made more complicated. Oh, okay, okay. Have yet another version of what was up with that circus the Nightcrawler was in and why he left? I, I don't know. I want to see Psy make the story complicated and nonsensical in ways I had never even considered. If anyone can do it and make it still awesome, it's probably Psy Spurrier. I like the cut of that man's gibberish. For real. Anyway, speaking of not exactly gibberish, and speaking of the line not exactly expanding, so, we are currently covering four comics. We're covering X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, Generation X, and X-Force. Plus whatever miniseries happen to pop up, of which there have been many. Yeah, and the occasional bits of other things. I mean, hell, we covered an X-Man story last time. So uh, That guy. That guy. Uh, so actually a rather slim line of team books at the moment, and we are coming to the end of a run on one of them, if not the end of the book itself. Today, we are going to be covering Larry Hama's final four issues, or rather final three issues, because one of them is somebody else, of Generation X. It's funny that you call this a run, because it doesn't really feel like one to me, and it actually wasn't until you pointed out that it was the end of Larry Hama's run that I it clicked to me that Larry Hama had had a run on this book. Like, I... I knew he had been writing issues, and he had been writing issues for a long time, but it's never felt like it had that cohesion and voice that I associate with a run. Like, it, it, it's never felt like he and, he and the book kind of clicked into that kind of sync. Which is so strange, because I mostly have thought of Larry Hama in the past as, you know, that Wolverine writer. And his Wolverine run very much does feel like a run. It's very cohesive, it has a very distinctive feel, and, like, it may not be everybody's style, I personally love it, but it's like, oh, right, Larry Hama's Wolverine. Of course, that's the thing. Well, and I think that's a thing that you see across shared universe lines a lot, is that not every writer clicks with every book. And you can see there are there are lots of runs, and I think Hamas here is, is a very good example, that are perfectly good and perfectly adequate and have some gems in them that just don't really define the book or don't feel that that distinctive in and of themselves. Entirely reasonable, entirely reasonable. But we are us. This is Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. We are going to explain the X-Men, even when the X-Men are not X-Men, but are Generation X. And so we're going to talk through it. And these four issues are are odd. They're odd, and they've got odd relationships to continuity, which, of course, makes them, you know, fertile ground for us. But before we tread upon that fertile ground, we should look to the precursors of the fertile ground, like, I don't know, rain and worms and stuff. Uh, by which I mean, let's talk about what Gen X has been up to. I was gonna say, rain was a new mutant, and then she was with X-Factor. Now she's on Excalibur. Which ended... Good point. Good point. Uh, but anyway, Gen X. So Generation X is the team of mutant students, mostly teenagers, at the Massachusetts branch of Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, in this case, formerly the Massachusetts Academy. 
And that team has been, for the most part, approaching a bit of a status quo, because after assorted interdimensional adventures and body swaps, they're just sort of going to school in a smallish town and having weird little adventures. The new normal has become still more normal as a result of a battle between Psylocke and the Shadow King in the pages of X-Men, which resulted in the loss of all telepathic powers in the world which really cut into Generation X because we had um, co-headmaster Emma Frost, who was a powerful telepath, uh, Monet Saint-Croix, whose many powers included telepathy, and Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, who's only able to speak telepathically because he blew up most of his face and chest. And uh, aside from that, aside from those three characters dealing with the loss of their powers and in one case ability to communicate verbally— uh, and aside from the weird space Snow White and her seven space dwarves who just fought the team and smashed up their training area, yeah, status quo in Snow Valley. Which brings us to Generation X number 44, Comings and Goings. This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Nick Mussolino, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And those space Snow White and space dwarves we were talking about, yeah, we, we open with them— Jay, do you remember Bianca Laneige? How would we briefly describe her? Uh, she was an old business rival of Emma Frost, who then traveled into other dimensions, gained a crew of bug creatures who she turned into vague approximations of the Seven Dwarves, and reinvaded the Massachusetts Academy only to get their asses summarily kicked. And so now they're just there, wearing aprons and gloves and covered in muddy splashes over their black leather outfits um they've been uh commanded to rebuild the danger grotto slash biosphere gen x's training area that they destroyed and what interests me here is that they're clearly rebuilding it out of bricks and mortar which doesn't seem like it would work very well because that place was like half shiar technology from space and half krakoan nature technology from nature monster maybe they're only nominally rebuilding it maybe like they the school wanted to give them an appropriate consequence, and they were like, okay, you've, you've got to rebuild this. So so they're just having them build something that's there and saying that they're rebuilding the biosphere, and then afterwards they're just going to shiar it up. They're just going to shiar those bricks away. I mean, it would have been simpler if they just told them to dig a hole and then fill that hole in, but I guess this is more fun to draw. Shiar, it occurs to me, sounds like sort of a cross between a couple different sound effects, or possibly something you'd say when extremely frustrated. She-yar! Or a grammatically incorrect way to start a sentence. She-yar, a very attractive woman. So, while they do this, Artie and Leech, who are the two small children who were living in a treehouse in the Danger Grotto, because um, the new Xavier school really doesn't give a fuck about child endangerment any more than the old Xavier school did, are walking around um, with a Polaroid camera taking pictures. Should we explain what a Polaroid camera was? Do the kids these days know? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're kind of retro, so maybe um, they were in the DLC for the first Last of Us game, uh, or at least a photo booth that used that technology was. Um, yeah, they were cameras where you would take a picture, and then like this sort of white square would come out, and gradually the picture would like develop itself on it. So it was about the closest thing to an instant camera, back when everything was on film instead of on a screen, that you could get. Right, and they were very cool and and expensive and, you know, now, and, and then they were very much a hipster thing. And now I guess they sort of still exist in, in some retro formats. But um, yeah, Artie and Leech have one. They're taking pictures. Um, that gives us a great panel of Bianca's annoyed face, like, on the Polaroid with the speech bubble coming out of her face on it. I love when they sort of fuck with format like that visually. So that's that's what's going on in the biosphere. Elsewhere in the school, Jubilee and Gaia are hanging out eating sugar bombs, that Calvin and Hobbes reference that has served as an ongoing gag in this particular book, and talking about Sink, um, the fellow on whom they have a mutual crush. Now, I want to remind you, Jubilee's been around for a long time, but I feel like we should maybe touch back on who Gaia is, because boy is she a situation. Yeah, yeah, she showed up a couple of arcs ago when Gen X ended up in another dimension in the Citadel of the Universal Amalgamator, which was like a big techno castle that some bad guys were going to use to do bad things. But the point is, she had been chained into this Citadel for an indeterminately but ridiculously long amount of time since her powers were somehow key to activating and like merging everything in the universe into one. So it's actually established in this arc as having been 17,000 years. 
17,000 years, this otherwise seemingly very normal pink-haired teenage girl was chained to, like, a a stone couch in a space castle. 17,000 years, mostly entirely on her own until, like, the bad guys showed up in that Gen X arc. She must have been so bored, like, minds-destroyingly, isolatedly bored. I mean, Rachel Summers was only lost in the time stream for 2,000 years, and she barely survived that, and she's Rachel Summers. I, I feel like I should, given my my actual job, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, that the UN and pretty much everybody that knows what it's talking about defines solitary confinement as torture. And they're generally not thinking in spans of, of you know, millennia. And she's, yeah, she's fine. She's good. Um, she's She's just popped out a totally normal pink haired teenager. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she doesn't really know a lot about Earth culture. She's still learning about how that works. But otherwise, she's fine. She's just one of the girls. Like, she's just a teenage girl. She's got reality warping powers. Her powers are so poorly defined. Like, sometimes they're reality warping. Sometimes she can power a big space castle. Sometimes she's just straight up telekinetic. And, like, she's not going to be in this book for all that long. I don't know that we ever get a good idea of just what the hell's going on with Gaia on any level. I mean, all of those things fall under the umbrella of reality warping. Think about, think about like the things you've seen fall under under that for the Scarlet Witch's power set, for for instance. I suppose, I suppose, but also reality warping powers. That's kind of like energy powers, where it can just be pretty much whatever the story calls for. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, they're having this heart to heart. Until Sink and Skin head out and wave goodbye, Jubilee's a little worried, though, because she sees them carrying the cigar box that Skin kept his pistol from his old gang days in. She's worried that they are off to get revenge on the two admittedly terrible jerks who beat Sink to within an inch of his life and hospitalized him. She also recalls the the cigar box as having been stolen by Stacy Autier. Um whose original name was Tracy and who is quickly being established as the Jerry Gergich of Generation X. Poor Lacey Otier. But as soon as Jubilee catches up with the boys and sees Sink pull something out of his coat and yells, don't shoot, yeah, it turns out Sink, ridiculously ethical, nice, understanding Sink, has actually just brought these two guys that nearly killed him and were kind of racist about it up some money to cover the down payment on a replacement car because the last time we saw them a spaceship fell on their car when gen x was fighting some bad guys i feel like doing this personally may have been taking it a step too far like this is the kind of thing you maybe do a community crowdfund for something along those lines i don't know it was the late 90s we didn't really have gofundme in the same way anyway as as sync explains to jubilee hatred is a cycle jubilee fueled by ignorance envy and fear Somebody has to break the chain, you know? Somebody has to stop hating back. Banshee, meanwhile, is headed to the airport uh, with Husk and Chambers. He's dropping Husk off to, to go back home. Um, remember, Husk and Cannonball and the other Guthrie children's mom is, is ill. And he's also picking up Siren, his, his daughter, who's flying in. And she looks so stylish when she shows up. She's in this, like, matching red captain's hat and coat. Like, we haven't talked a lot about the Dodson's art. Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson are the regular artists on Gen X at this point. Um, We've talked a lot about Chris Pacello because we love his work so much, and he's the iconic Gen X artist, but they're pretty good. Like, their style is very clean and very cheerful, and while it can later on veer into being a little bit cheesecakey as far as drawing female characters, like, this is not that era. I kind of like that we finally have a regular artist on Gen X again, you know? My one major issue with them is that I have a lot of trouble telling the difference between the faces of the women in the comic. Um, and they they draw Emma with indeterminate bangs which means that she and Paige get confusing again that has been a flaw for so much of this book with so many artists it's like okay we have the blonde middle-aged ish woman who co-runs the school this icy telepath who's been through hell and then the ambitious young uh southern leader type character Paige. but because they're both blonde women like all of those other distinctions just fall away visually unless you know like what each of them is wearing. It's really a shame. And it's it's one of those things that I think you see getting better as coloring advances within comics. 
Um, and you can have, for instance, multiple shades of blonde. But the fact that it's an issue in line art is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, unfortunate. Overall, good art, though. So Chamber is, as you mentioned, Jay, still along with these characters. Um, One thing I want to point out is that he has a t-shirt that that reads, This Machine Kills Fascists, which uh, if you're a student of old folk or protest music, you might recognize as what Woody Guthrie had on his uh, guitar case. I am, and I do. Yeah, yay. Woody Guthrie, fucking great. His son Arlo Guthrie, also fucking great. Look them up. Also extremely topical this week, since it's Thanksgiving week as we're recording this, and Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie is a standby, although it really bothers me that that's the Arlo Guthrie song that everyone knows when In My Darkest Hour is so much better. Oh, that's a really good song. Uh, anyway, but we are not here to explain uh, those Guthries. We're here to explain unrelated Guthries. That is interesting. Miles, they're, given given the mutability of the Marvel Guthrie family, they're probably related. That is actually a very good point. I mean, hell, Colossus is related to, like, Russian immortal beardo guy Rasputin in the Marvel Universe. So, uh, yeah, and as we know, villainous Zaladane may be the sister of Lorna Dane in that they have half the same last name everybody's related to everybody in the marvel universe yes yes they are it's like iceland (laughs) yes no there's actually there's so there's actually a a government-sponsored app in iceland that you can use to make sure you don't accidentally hook up with your cousins because no because it's 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 a very small island and they use patronymics okay i had no idea so you can't be like like you can't tell by virtue of having the same last name or not oh if there were Guthrie's in Iceland, it would be especially confusing. Also, they'd be very cold. They're used to Appalachian weather. So Paige Guthrie and Chamber, who has the shirt with a quote by Woody Guthrie, head off to leave Banshee and Siren, father and daughter, to talk. And it's super awkward. Remember, for most of Siren's life, Banshee didn't know that she existed. His wife died while he was off doing missions for Interpol, and Black Tom Cassidy raised his daughter in his absence. He never knew that he had a daughter until he met her when she was a young adult. So, understandable, the awkwardness. And he apologizes for not being there and for, for wait a minute, for leaving her to her mom after he and her mom split and for making excuses just to be selfish and do his own thing. That. He didn't split from his wife. She died. He didn't knowingly abandon his daughter. He didn't know she existed. I don't know. Sometimes we see this in comics where the version of a character being written does not jive at all with their backstory as it's been written. What do you think, Jay? Do you think Banshee works better as a character who just never knew he had a daughter or one who, you know, had this complex reaction to it and bailed? So I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle, and I don't think they're entirely mutually exclusive options. Banshee strikes me as the kind of guy who retcons guilt into things. Oh, oh, that's a good point and actually a really good way of phrasing it. So, aside from the very, very obvious continuity conflicts in this, I think Banshee saying, you know, I wasn't there for you because I was so busy doing my own thing, is entirely in line with his thinking, even if he wasn't there for her because he was busy doing his own thing because he didn't know she existed. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Like he's such a he's got such a good heart and sometimes that's got a dark side. Good heart. Where's Turtleneck's will? Mm, that's important in the Marvel universe. But the thing is, Siren says she doesn't mind him having been off doing his own thing because as she talks about it, she did get a lot of stuff from him. I've got your wits, your wild humor and whatever it is that makes a leader, but Best of all, you've given me something that precious few can give their children. You gave me the sky to fly through and a voice to crack the heavens. And off she flies, grinning, and the Dodson art is lovely. Siren is such a hard character to get right. I think a lot of writers have really failed to define her very well. But this sort of, like, carefree, joyful, fierce personality we see just a glimpse of here, I think that works. Well, and specifically someone who takes a lot of joy in their powers. Yes, very much so. Which, you know, fair enough. Even if you're flying by screaming real loud, which is kind of weird, you're still freaking flying. That's awesome. Meanwhile, um, on the opposite end of the vocal spectrum, Husk and Chamber are having a very one-sided conversation because Jono, remember, 
communicates psionically only. Um, so he's effectively unable to 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 communicate, you know, verbally, and he he doesn't have any any other other modes of communication other than writing. Um, so Husk is off to stay with her family and asks Chamber if he can he can wait for her, even though things have been rough. And he writes, I promise, on a napkin and then uses his psionic plasma to carefully burn a heart into it below. And it's very sweet. It's so sweet. I love them. Speaking of conversations that are perhaps a little less sweet, well, depending on how much sugar they put in the tea, uh, Gaia and Emma are having tea. This is where Gaia talks about her confusingly bizarre past, but as they're bickering and bantering, all of a sudden, wham, they are hit with a giant wave as they feel the first flushes of telepathy returning after Cywar. But they don't have much time to think about this, because at the same time, everyone notices that, you know, the training area that was being rebuilt by Space Snow White and her Space Seven Dwarves, it's, um, it's vanished, as have they. And all that's left on the ground is a Polaroid, Polaroid again, of a decayed version of the building in a futuristic city. And I don't know that this actually goes anywhere, and we never see Bianca or the Dwarves ever again. Which brings us to Generation X number 45, Lost and Found, written by Jay Farber, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Nick Mussolino, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Liz Agrafiatis. Jay Farber, uh, yeah, he's actually going to be the new ongoing writer after the issues we're covering in this episode. I know almost nothing about this person's work. Uh, the Dodsons will still draw, so we'll have that through line, that continuity. But this issue, it's, I don't know, I mean, not a lot happens in it, but written pretty well yeah i summarizing it in exhaustive detail feels kind of silly because it's basically all the telepaths deal with the fallout of fallout of cywar but then abruptly get their powers back so there's no real point to that it's weird because like we mentioned at the end of the last issue some characters started getting their telepathy back like emma got a flash of her telepathy again but here it's treated like that didn't happen maybe that's just a artifact of switching writers i don't know she, therefore, is still pretty messed up. That's one of the things this issue focuses on. Yeah, so Emma is is coping with her, the loss of her powers by stomping around and throwing all the papers off her desk and then punching a punching bag until Sean shows up to stand in for the punching bag. Emma has no interest in going through all this. Get out, Sean. I'm not up for talking. I will not talk about this, so save the shoulder to cry on nonsense. I don't cry. And I don't scare. So we've got ourselves a bit of a stalemate here, haven't we? And then they have kinky sex. They don't. They just uh, spar a lot while, um, I don't know, yelling a lot. The kids are actually all gathered outside the door, and Emma's pretending she has super hearing and talking about how she keeps hearing them flirt. It's great. I love Banshee and Emma Frost's dynamic so much. They are such a fascinating pair of characters. And... A pair of characters that's largely been forgotten as Emma's become much more popular and Banshee's become much more forgotten. So, yeah, this Rogue and Iceman, Wolfsbane and Strong Guy, Havoc and Dazzler, there are so many good pairings of characters, and largely not romantic pairings, friendship pairings, that I wish we would come back to. I'm I'm stuck considering whether Banshee and Emma are a romantic pairing or just a weird sex pairing. But there's clearly something going on, you're saying? I mean, they're definitely having weird sex. The question is whether there's also romance. Uh, you know, I feel like their individual conceptions of romance are so fundamentally different as to be almost incompatible. So I think, A, it's not really a romantic connection, and B, they probably disagree about whether or not it's a romantic connection. Yeah, I feel like Banshee would, would kind of attempt to force that end of it. And Emma would just be like, no. Honey, except she wouldn't call him honey because she doesn't even want to have that kind of a romantic connection. Yeah, no, it'd be like, no, Sean, get, you know, put the handcuffs back on. <laughs> Just do what you're doing. Let's not make it weird. Exactly. Exactly. So Emma points out that he cannot understand what she's going through. Like, yeah, he lost his powers once before, back during an X-Men arc in the 70s, but his powers aren't his identity the way that hers have always been since they first manifested. Right. Um, and, and for her being a telepath is, is just is fundamental to how she sees herself and how she interacts with the world. Like his powers are something he can do. Hers are something she is. Exactly. And speaking of characters trying to cheer up their companions who have lost their powers, Jubilee and Skin are doing their best to like 
coax chamber into playing basketball with them to just distract him uh unsuccessfully unsuccessfully and uh yeah uh, Miles, you noted that Chamber has a Paul Weller poster. Uh, he led popular punk band The Jam in the 1980s and had a big British solo career as a core of Britpop in the late 90s. This was the late 90s. And I do you see Chamber as a Britpop guy? My guess is that Chamber has that poster up because he's really big into the 80s Paul Weller stuff. And uh, it's specifically a Paul Weller poster and not a The Jam poster because he's just waiting for somebody to accuse him of liking Britpop so he can disdainfully explain the details to them. That seems very much in character, yes. Yes. Meanwhile, Gaia and Sync flirt, and Gaia, again, just remains unsettlingly normal. It's so bizarre that she's not bizarre. See, no, Monet, for her part, is pissed off that nobody cares that Cyborg took out her telepathy, too, which I, I kind of get both halves of, because on one hand, yeah, like, she was impacted by this, too. On the other hand, she has such a big power set that I could see it being very easy to forget that telepathy was part of it. I just find it interesting that there's all this fuss over Jono when everyone seems to be forgetting something. My telepathy was affected by the EMP wave, too. Sure, I've got other powers, and I can still talk, but no one even asked about me. I imagine I'll regret saying this later, but it hurts my feelings. Sink awkwardly replies. Wow. You, um, you want a hug or something? Oh, please, Everett. Don't you wish. And then everyone's powers come back, and they learn that Guy is joining the team, and they're all getting new uniforms, and that's the end of the issue. It's just so abrupt. It's like, oh, you remember that big earth-shattering event that happened? It's done. That feels generally emblematic of Cywar. I think so, yeah. Like, I like that it impacted all the books. And not every event that impacts all the books has to be a great big thing. But for something like this, you would think it would be. I mean, look at how much mileage the X-Men books are getting out of Jean Grey losing her powers. It's not that I would have expected its impact to be deeper. It's that I would have expected it to last more than three months. There, There is that, yeah. I mean, even the Age of Apocalypse lasted four months, and that reality completely disappeared. Uh, well, for a while. So this brings us to Generation X number 46, The Quality of Mercy. This issue is written by Larry Hama once again, penciled by Aaron Lepresti, inked by Walden Wong, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Liz Agrafiatis. Aaron Lepresti is actually a very good sub for the for the Dodsons. Um, everyone's a little less pretty and airbrushed looking, but it's still a very compatible style, and all the characters still have the same type of distinctive looks, uh, female faces aside, that they did under the Dodsons. Uh, this is a good choice for a fill-in. Well, the female characters are much more distinctive when Lepresti's drawing them, actually. Uh, that's true. Lepresti does do that definitely better than than the Dodsons. I really like Aaron Lepresti's art. Like, I think it's easy to sort of gloss over fill-in artists, but some of them, I mean, hell, John Bogdanov is a great freaking artist, and we've mainly seen him as a fill-in artist in the X-Universe. I would say Lepresti at this point pretty well counts as as, as you know, legendary superhero artist. Like, he's, he, is, he is not to be scoffed at. Sure, I'm just saying in the context of this particular arc, he's a villain artist. Anyway, on the cover, we see the kids wearing a little bit different type of an outfit than we usually see. They have X-logoed suits and red and black striped ties, and the boys are wearing pants and the girls in short skirts, and they're all using their powers and posing all badass. And we're going to see this look revisited decades later uh, in, in Jason Aaron and Chris Pacello's Wolverine and the X-Men. And also in Christina Strain's later Gen X Volume 2, the kids are wearing somewhat similar uniforms. Emma and Sean are dressed a bit more formally as well, as they address the children in their classroom. She's wearing this very Emma Frost white power suit, and he's awkwardly picking at his shamrock tie that he's wearing under a more formal outfit. And they are... All dressed to the nines, and they have the kids in uniforms because there is a Miss Pickwick from the Educational Standards Board coming by. Um, and she is, she is coming to inspect the school and determine whether it gets to keep its license. And I don't really get why this is an issue because Emma has her telepathy back. Uh, she does, yeah, and she's also being like a total hard-ass about everything. You'd think she would have no compunctions about just rewriting somebody's perceptions. 
We should note at this point, by the way, this is not the same educational board person as Margaret Stone, who is an inspector that came to check out Xavier's school in New York very recently. Two completely different characters. They'd have to be there in different states. Well, I mean, okay, yes, that too. But I guess they're on a similar schedule. Like, is there just a school inspecting season? It's like Arbor Day. It's like one of those lesser known holidays. I would expect that there actually is, yeah, for, for recertification. Oh. Oh, well. Well, let's just go ahead and assume that's deliberate between the writers, and they coordinated extremely well. I mean, it's also that this school has to deal briefly with reality is pretty much never a, not a funny concept. Yeah, yeah, for real. So, anyway, everyone's preparing for this visit. They're sitting there in this great opening spread of the kids in their uniforms, like the credits are on these monitors hanging with the computer equipment on a wall to the side. I love it when credits are integrated into title pages. And they all bicker as Gaia sucks up and M and Penance acknowledge their weird history. Because remember, M's twin younger sisters are now trapped in the red spiky Penance form, and M herself is back in her original body. But the current setup is at least consensual, which the previous one was not. Definite improvement. And this is a good opportunity for some continuity doctoring as Emma Frost clears some things up. She points out that, wait a minute, Penance was listed in the school records as being Yugoslavian. And indeed, the Generation X Ashcan comic preview from before number one came out that I still have in my closet uh, listed Penance as really being a girl named Yvette from Yugoslavia. But M is like, no, 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 Emma. The deal is I was born in Sarajevo in the former nation of Yugoslavia while my parents were on holiday. Um, and my full name is Monet Yvette Clarice Maria Therese St. Croix. So it all makes sense. All of that stuff about Yugoslavia, about Penance being a different character than me. No, that doesn't count. Uh, Larry Hama's great big retcon about the St. Croix siblings is totally consistent and fine, says Larry Hama in this comic. Something that I'm not super fond of about Larry Hama's run is that he works really hard to resolve a lot of stuff like this. And some of the things he resolves are actually continuity issues, but a lot of what he resolves is basically passing whimsy. You're not wrong. Yeah. You know, it's fine. The St. Croix family tree is incredibly complicated after all of these various retcons. And let's be real, Jay, we would get bored without continuity tangles. Oh my god, what if one of them married a Guthrie? Oh geez, or a Summers. Maybe one of them marries a Summers and they have a Guthrie for a kid somehow. Holy shit, maybe that's why there are so many Guthrie kids. They just sort of happen, and then they gravitate to Cumberland? That could be it. No, it's like, it's like you can manifest as a mutant, you can also manifest as a Guthrie. Holy shit, this makes so much sense. It's the G factor. Anyway, it's uh, time for gym class, so the students get back into their normal red and yellow Generation X uniforms that we've come to know and love. And uh, Emma trains the girls, uh, including Em, who gets on Emma's case about where Emma got her money to found the school. Emma defends herself. But that was the past. Another time, another Emma Frost. Don't you think people can change, Monet? No, Miss Frost, I don't think people can really change. I think they just get better at hiding what they really are. Real Monet is very judgmental. Yeah, I kind of wonder if that's a deliberate choice, because remember, the Monet, the M that we knew for the first few dozen issues of the series was really her little sisters pretending to be her. So it makes sense that they would come up with a version of her that was kind of similar, since they knew her very well. But yeah, this new Monet does seem harsher. We've seen that a couple times before. And I guess it makes sense. She was trapped in a mute, monstrous form for a long, long time around these characters, but un unable to directly interact with them. I could see her having some bitterness and being too proud to admit it. She's been saving up so much snark for the last several years. Oh, she will keep emitting snark waves for many, many years to come. Remember her in Peter David's second X-Factor run? I do. So great. I love M as a character. Anyway, Jubilee comes to Emma's defense, kind of. I mean, it's got to take a lot of guts to stand up here and lecture us kids about morality when we all know what a devious witch she used to be. I mean, she used to plunder retirement accounts and, like, the savings of old crippled widows. You really got to hand it to her. The thing is, Jubilee is genuinely trying here. She's just Jubilee. 
Aaron Lepresti does a great job of showing Jubilee's earnestness here as she's speaking, and Emma's kind of oh-brother face as she looks on. I, I love Lepresti's work. Meanwhile, uh, the boys are are dealing with their own conundrums as Sink asks Banshee for advice on his crush on Gaia, and and what he gets back from Banshee is basically, women are impossible to understand, but at least you're young and at peak physicality. Larry Hama, I, I don't know how to feel about this. Like, the thing is, Banshee totally does see women as people. I can't imagine him doing the, like, men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. I mean, before he and Moira McTaggart hooked up, like, they were, they really respected each other. Yes, there was romantic charge, but, like, you know, Banshee's, I, I see Banshee as totally being a feminist and, and, and totally being an egalitarian and, and not just seeing women as confusing things that, you know, shop and have emotions. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird conversation in general, and I, I think just sort of generally, gently uh, shoving it into the memory hole is probably the best way to go. That seems fine. Anyway, remember Miss Pickwick? Uh, yeah, so she shows up at the school, and she freaks out so hard at how weird everyone is. And I mean, they are pretty weird, to be fair, be it in their records or the fact that one of them is a red monster lady. She freaks out so hard that she has a heart attack. Like, like for real, she has a heart attack. And so they have to rush her to the hospital while Emma telepathically stabilizes her. And this is actually a really fun scene as they, they rush to the hospital. We see all the characters use their powers. Like, Chamber blasts a hole in an overturned semi that's blocking the road. And Skin stretches to help them steer out of a skid. And Penance jumps out and slashes a tree apart before they crash into it. Em is flying above, scouting. Uh, Emma telepathically contacts the doctor at the ER ahead of time to get a cardiac team ready. Sync synchronizes Gaia's telekinesis, which I guess is part of reality warping, so they can levitate the car over a chasm. It's it's really fun, and I think it does fit the wacky school trying to come off as normal vibe that this issue is all about. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? The crowd control scene with the original 5X-Men in Alaska. Oh, that story we recently covered when the birds are all attacking? Yeah, and they're not they're not really using their powers, but they're they're basically it's it's the superhero team doing the more ground level stuff that that doesn't involve that doesn't involve fighting. Yeah, and also similarly, they're trying to be a little more uh, subtle because Emma by mind linking with this woman trying to keep her alive, that means that the woman is seeing through Emma's senses as well. And in fact, when Miss Pickwick recovers, she comes in with a wheelchair and says, you know what? I did determine that this is not a normal school, but that it is one where everyone is very ethical. You all risked your secrets and your lives to save me. And so she gives the school the highest possible recommendation, and they all hug as she cries. And it's actually really happy and heartwarming for this issue that is not very significant continuity-wise. It's lovely. None of them are going to uh, you know, achieve common standard levels of education in any subjects, but it'll be okay. It's fine. Who needs to know anything about math or geography when you can blow holes in a semi to save a woman who had a heart attack about how odd you were? That brings us to Larry Hama's final issue, Generation X number 47, She Got Game. This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled again by Aaron Lepresti, inked by Walden Wong, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And um, it, before we get into the plot, uh, we establish a, a bit of fairly straightforward resolution to one of the great mysteries of this arc, which is that the biosphere, um, which was a piece of Krakoa, the island that walks like a man, did what islands that walk like men do and wandered off. Yeah, it wandered off in this case through a portal, I guess, to rejoin the rest of Krakoa. This seems significant and important, and I'm not familiar enough with this era to know if it ever goes anywhere. But given how many plot threads from the late parts of Hama's run are dropped, I suspect it doesn't. Again, Bianca Laneige and the Seven Dwarves never mentioned again. Maybe they're just buried somewhere under the nation-state of Krakoa right now because they just got chomped back into it. I mean, that's consistent with previous runs, too. This is a book that has so many dropped plot threads, it's basically got fringe as a design element. <laughs> so, Forge has remodeled the school's gym into a new danger room using some sort of dodgy, possibly sentient, spoiler, definitely sentient, artificial intelligence that he himself does not actually understand, as he explains or fails to explain... 
Could be alien, interdimensional, or maybe even transtemporal. Surely this will not come back to bite him immediately. Spoiler, it will. Okay, look, Forge has been through a lot. He was on X-Factor and the team disintegrated, and then the rest of it blew up. He felt very betrayed about the whole thing, so it makes some sense that he would take out his frustration by finding random extra-dimensional intelligences and binding them into computers. That's bad. I love Forge, but as we know, his judgment is not always great. Also, don't date him. Which comes to the next amazing plot point in this issue, which is that while he's there, Banshee and Emma decide to have him guest lecture on ethics. That's a choice. That is a hell of a choice. I Forge is very, very knowledgeable about a lot of things. And he's very competent at a lot of things. And this is not one of them. You know, it's one of those things where a guest lecturer gets brought in, not because they are necessarily the best choice for the topic, but because they know the boss. Remember, Banshee and Forge are actually pretty good buds. For a while, during the non-team era of the X-Men toward the end of Chris Claremont's run, they were sort of the closest thing we had to a core of the X-Men. And I really love seeing them back together. I love that when we see them back together here, they're both wearing the old blue and yellow X-Men training uniforms that they used to wear back in the day. Like, I wonder if they each were deciding what to wear that morning and they're like, oh, well, maybe it would be nice if I wore the thing that we used to wear together. And then when they both showed up and met each other and they saw that they'd each had the same uh, idea, they didn't say anything about it because they're too traditionally masculine and don't talk about their feelings, but they were both just like, yeah. It's Banshee. I'm sure he called Forge early to coordinate their outfits. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. I love them together. So part of it for me is I used to collect X-Men action figures here and there, and uh, Forge and Banshee had those, and they were two of the only characters in the blue and yellow training uniform, so even though I hadn't really read the comics from that era at the time, I just assumed they were, like, best, best friends. Wow. They kind of are. Anyway. While while Forge is, is lecturing the kids on ethics... Gaia is playing basketball in the gym and or danger room. And Forge has insisted that this setup is entirely safe as long as no one tampers with its internal codes, which surely none of the students are capable of doing. And which Gaia immediately manages to do by fucking with the shape of the basketball hoop while she's shooting baskets. And this awakens the AI, who is basically in in the same, you know, see it as me when it comes to being weirded out by the fact that Forge is then teaching an ethics lecture, which it interrupts to demand. And what kind of ethical decision is it to condemn a sentient being to an eternity of being a hoop and a backboard? Is it that a bit high-handed and grossly unempathetic? Yes. Yes, it is, Paradox. Paradox was right. Uh, This being, incidentally, is named Paradox. It will never appear again. It has never appeared before. This is its sole appearance, which is weird and kind of unfortunate because I think it's got a lot of potential. Well, it's weird also because Danger, the idea of the sentient Danger Room that, like, comes to life to get revenge later, is kind of the same concept, minus the basketball board transmutation bit. So everyone's response to this creature coming in and saying, hi, you enslaved me and it was fucked up, is to beat Paradox up and enslave them again. I mean, okay, to be fair, Paradox does try to kill everyone, so there's at least a little bit of fighting back involved. Yeah, but I feel like Paradox would have chilled if they'd at least acknowledged the harm. Just one of those, oh, uh, sorry, our bad, you want to talk about it? And he would have been like, yeah, or no, or at least they could have, you know subdued him and then not immediately re-enslaved him like there are many options in this scenario that don't involve that and yet that's what they do with the full knowledge that they are enslaving a sentient creature this time so i can only assume that every time the kids play basketball they're like ha ha the basketball hoop is a monster that we fought one time and it's stuck there suffering we enjoy suffering yeah what the hell What the hell, indeed. So, yes, this is the main plot of Larry Hama's last issue. Like, there's a little more, but this is how this run ends. Yeah, so, um, there there is a little more. Artie and Leech happily move into the attic, um, now that the treehouse has disappeared along with the biosphere. Apparently, they were 
they had to live in the treehouse because they're talking about how much better this is, which is kind of an upsetting realization. You know, they were outdoor cats. And Emma breaks the big news that the school where they live is finally going to make some attempt to educate them. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. And I actually do like Artie and Leech being in this book. I know they're largely ignored, but one of the things I like is especially when Lepresti draws them, they're growing up, they're getting older. Like Leech at this point has a couple of earrings in one ear and is wearing like the weird kind of big jester's hat that used to kind of be a thing in the late 90s for some reason. Like they're teenagers. I mean, they'll be moppets again the next time they're written probably, but for now. This is one of those places that really strikes me as um, a trying to fix whimsy um because i i i really loved that generation x just had a couple of feral moppets living in their backyard that they would occasionally remember existed like oh hope they're doing okay should we like i don't know bring them some food or something nah they can just hunt no no they come in through the already leech shaped holes in the door oh excellent excellent they have their names over each one yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> so uh there you have it listeners uh larry hama's run on generation x has ended it it was a weird one it was it it certainly existed i i don't feel like it contributed a lot to the the voice and and arc of the book but it was generally more pleasant than not yeah, I think the main thing that I remember it for, that I suspect a lot of people remember it for, is the giant M retcon about M having been trapped in the form of penance and her twin younger siblings having been impersonating her. Because originally, of course, the idea was that there was no actual M. There were just the twin siblings pretending to be a teenage girl, and penance was completely unrelated. So that's a hell of a shift, you know? It is. That is a a bold choice, definitely. I kind of love that, though. I kind of love when there's a bit of a continuity snarl and a writer's like, oh, I'll fix this, and just makes it four times as complicated. Oh, yes. That's X-Men for you. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, If you were Apocalypse and needed four new horsemen who had never been in those roles before, what four mutants would you pick? I'm going to shake things way up at the start and say Cypher would be war. Okay, okay, I'm I'm intrigued. Um, I mean, universal communication, but twisted. Oh, man. Violence is the universal language, kind yeah. of. That's depressing, but uh, totally works, especially with, like, apocalypse brain. Um, okay, let's, let's continue being unorthodox. What about Husk as famine? Now, not so much with her powers, exactly, although I'm sure those could be applied. Like, I don't know, maybe she uses her powers and then people peel off their skin and they're all, like, emaciated under- underneath or something. But personality-wise, she always has that ambition, that constant desire for more that can never be sated. You twist that around Apocalypse style, you got yourself a famine. All right, so I'm going to go back to the beaten path uh, for Pestilence and say Nature Girl. That just seems like a gimme. It it does. Uh, especially with some of the dark shit she's been doing in X-Men Green. Such a good series in the uh, online Marvel Unlimited X-Men Unlimited comics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of transformations going on. Uh, that sort of body horror, irreversible thing that fits really well for Pestilence. That's an awesome idea. So that leaves death. Oh, so many people have been death. There have been like twice as many deaths as any of the other horsemen. I'm pretty sure either you or I have been death at least once. I mean, who can recall? It's a position with a very, very high turnover. Apocalypse is working <laughs> on it. It's true. It's true. Uh, you know, his HR department is just continuing to sigh heavily every time he makes a decision. So, death. Uh, we've seen so many. You know, maybe this is too easy, but I'm going to say rogue. The idea of, like, the negation of self that is so inherent to her powers in both directions, like, when she uses her powers on somebody else and they're rendered comatose or whatever, or they lose their identity, and then the fact that her identity is continually subsumed under all of these other identities, that really says death to me. That kind of leaves me thinking about her role in Age of X. Yes, where she was a uh, legacy, where every time a character died, she would sort of acquire their identity so it was not fully forgotten. Yeah. Listeners, Age of X, as distinct from Age of X-Man, they are two different things. That's very confusing. But Age of X is such an underrated event. Like, you can see it as just Age of Apocalypse all over again, but it is so very much its own thing. And the redone versions of all the different characters are fascinating. Yeah, it's one of the best pocket universe events, I think, that the X-Line has ever done. Ah, for real. The Pariah Effect asks on Tumblr, 
two unrelated X-Men who don't share a romantic history are suddenly revealed to be related. What pairing makes for the most awkward holidays? Oh, that's a good question. And also very topical as we record this in very late November. Um, So I immediately went to Marrow and Gambit. I mean, her life was just utterly destroyed by the mutant massacre. He was one of the people that inadvertently orchestrated the mutant massacre. But that's actually been addressed a little in the comics we're covering at this point already. And I know that Gambit and Marrow are going to be on the same team together for a while with our future coverage. So maybe we don't go with that answer. So instead... Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Bishop and Hope. I mean, he chased her when she was a baby through time trying to murder her and committed, like, multiple genocides on the way. It's really hard to get past that at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know? It's like, don't talk politics, don't talk religion, don't talk about the trillions of lives this dude has snuffed out trying to murder your baby self. Yeah, that's that's an awkward one. I mean, you got some other options, though. Like, uh, I was thinking also Emma Frost and Kitty Pride, or Emma Frost and Firestar. But Emma's actually managed to make up with both of those people as Butter Rum looks down disapproving from the afterlife. Emma Frost and Butter Rum. Emma Frost and Butter Rum. Yes, okay, Marvel, make Butter Rum officially a mutant just so we can have this scenario. It'll be great. Like, that would be awkward for so many reasons. It's true. Like, it's hard enough to fit people at your Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, especially if one of them's a horse. So I think I think my, my other answer to this is Magneto and literally anyone. Like, Magneto at family holidays would is never not awkward. For real, yeah. It's also just so confusing remembering who his family is, because, like, you think you know who a relative is. Maybe a new one is revealed, like in this scenario. Ten minutes later, not a relative. Ten minutes after that, a relative again. And and the thing is, I, I gotta say, this this prompt leaves room for some workarounds that that are kind of obvious too like for example cyclops and polaris okay tell me more about that well you couldn't say havoc and polaris in response to the prompt but you could say cyclops and polaris which would have the same effect oh that's true that's true because then cyclops gonna is gonna be raising an eyebrow underneath that visor at the fact that when his brother left polaris at the altar she tried to murder everyone in sight Man, Polaris has not had kindness from the people who have written her over the years. Uh, until recently. It's rough to be Lorna Dane. It is rough to be Lorna Dane. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded usually in Forest Hills, New York, currently in New Fairfield, Connecticut, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we're taking a break from ongoing material for an Excalibur and X-Factor postmortem. <laughs>